Can you believe that we have come to the end of that world? Of course. We started this journey together eight months ago in January. Five of your pastors have had the privilege of bringing the word of the Lord to you as we've worked through John 13, 14, 15, 16, and now we're finishing up what's referred to as the high priestly prayer in John 17. Next week, we will be moving on to a new series on the minor prophets. That's those pages that are most white in your Bibles. Probably they are in mine. But God has so much for us, and we would appreciate your prayers as we start that series. It'll be a 13-week series. There are 12 minor prophets. We'll have an introductory sermon uh, next Sunday, and then give one Sunday to each of the prophets. And um, everybody's already at work studying and trying to uh, open our own hearts and minds before the Lord so that then He can use us as instruments uh, in, in bringing His Word to you. Let's read these last few verses of John 17, John 17, 25 through 26. Jesus praying, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. One of the things we've seen as we've gone through this prayer in John 17 is that so many of the themes of the upper room discourse are then prayed through by our Lord Jesus as he is on his way to the garden. He spoke with the disciples about the Father's great love for them, and in this prayer he prays about that love. He spoke with the disciples about love for each other and about unity, and in this prayer he prays about love and unity. As we've studied the Upper Room Discourse, we have talked much about the continuing presence of Jesus Christ with us and the significance of abiding in Christ, and these are things that Jesus prays about in this prayer. We've talked about the fact that Jesus was sending the disciples on mission and promising that he would be with them, and here in the prayer, Jesus prays those same things. We talked about hostility in the world and even persecutions and overcoming in Jesus Christ, and Jesus prayed about that. So many of the themes that he shared are then things that he prays, that he prays first regarding himself and the trial that he is about to undergo regarding the cross. Then he prays for the disciples, for the 11, who are with him, and then he even prays for us when he says that he is praying for all those who will come to faith through the testimony of those 11 disciples. And here in these last few verses, we almost have all of that encapsulated in just a few words, where again, he speaks of his glory 
where he speaks of the Father's love, where he talks about the significance of knowing the Father, and then where he calls us to witness. So as we look at these verses, as we look at these months that we have spent talking about how Jesus loves us, here we can see it in a nutshell, in that Jesus loves us eternally. He gives us eternal hope, and he has an eternal provision for the world. In looking over these verses, well, one of the things I did was listen to the sermons from the last three weeks, and so grateful for Roger and Danny and Cameron uh, as they powerfully opened the scriptures for us, also as they dealt with many of the themes that I would have dealt with this morning. So it required a bit of a unique perspective in coming into the passage. And as I studied, as I considered, one of the things that jumped out to me is that in many ways, this is a passage about a theme that we don't often discuss, but that is important for us. And that is our understanding of our eternal fate. We don't talk about that much. We don't like to consider death. We don't like to talk about death. In fact, many of the things that I'm going to say this morning, you would only hear if you were here at some point for a funeral service. But you know what? It's important for all of us all the time to have a good perspective on what awaits us, what awaits us as believers, and what awaits those who do not yet know the Lord Jesus Christ. And the exciting thing that we see here is that for us as believers, our future is great. Our future is something to look forward to. We see that in this passage because our future is something that Jesus looks forward to. The first thing that Jesus says in these verses, let's read verse 24 again together. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. Jesus wants you to be with him. That's remarkable. Some of my best friends don't want to be with me a good amount of the time. He yelled at his kids, he kicked the dog, he's grumbling about the traffic. Who wants to be around him, you know? Jesus wants to be with you. He sees you, he loves you, and he longs to spend eternity with you. He's not talking about his disciples being with him as he walks to the garden. They're already there. In fact, throughout the Upper Room Discourse, we have seen Jesus talk about where I am, but talking about the future, talking about the fact that he is going to the Father. We heard it in the very beginning of the Upper Room Discourse, John chapter 14, where Jesus says that where I am, you may also be. 
Jesus is talking about His eternal place of glory at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly realms. And right there He prays and says, He wants you, He wants me to be there with Him in that eternal fellowship. Have you ever wondered about Psalm 116.15, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints? It's kind of an odd verse. Again, death is something that, that we avoid. We don't want to talk about it. We don't like to think about it. Yeah, it's out there somewhere, but we, we're not exactly sure what it's like, and so we dread the unknown. There's all sorts of unpleasantness associated with it, and so we'd rather kind of separate ourselves from any thought of it. But it's precious, actually. It's something that in God's sight is a beautiful thing. Our transition from this fallen, decrepit, painful world and decaying body into the glorious presence of the Lord is something that is beautiful and is precious and that the Lord Jesus even longs for. It is something that the Apostle Paul says is better by far. Do you remember that in Philippians chapter 1? Paul's in prison. He's on trial. He knows that he might die for his faith. And he scratches his head and says, I don't know which I should choose. It would be better Better by far to depart and be with the Lord, and yet for your sake it's necessary that I remain here. And so he's ready to do either one of those things. Because he knows that the day is coming, that he will be completely delivered from struggle with sin. Can you imagine that day? No more sin. No more temptation, no more falling, no more frustration. It's gone. No more sorrow, no more pain, no more tears. Eternal and ever-increasing pleasure at the right hand of the Father. That is what is better by far. That's what we look forward to, and that is what Jesus longs for, for us. It's a beautiful thing. Now, I do want to be careful. In no way am I encouraging us to seek some premature end to our earthly journey. We should not so look forward to that day that we in any way consider cutting short these days. The Lord has numbered our days and has us here for a purpose. That is why the Apostle Paul actually says in Philippians chapter 1, I know that I will remain because the Lord has more work for me to do. When we say that we look for and long for that day, what we are talking about is a fitting end to a faithful journey. It would be like being on vacation. Have you ever been on a pretty long vacation and you're looking forward to getting home? 
You're not gonna end your vacation early. There's a lot to enjoy and a lot to do, but it doesn't change the fact that we look forward to the end of the journey and being home. Or for those of us who actually enjoy the job that we do, it's looking forward to getting home at the end of a day in which we're doing the things that we love to do. The fact that I look forward to getting home doesn't mean I check out early. It means that there is something ahead of me that I long for and I look forward to as I faithfully walk the journey that the Lord has given me here. So this future that we have is great. This future that we have is something to look forward to. And this future that we have is certain. This is Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. The Son of God wills that you be with Him. It's not a mere wish or desire. It's not something that he hopes will happen but is uncertain of. It is the will of the creator and sustainer of the universe that his children be with him in eternity. And so we can rest on his communication of his sovereign will that this is not something that we just wonder about. It's something that we can be certain of. It's certain because he wills it, but it is also certain because he made the way. Remember in John 14, Jesus said that he is going to prepare a place for us. He's looking forward to that day we're with him. But we know the way to that place because he has made the way. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. The way to the Father is through him. He didn't just make that way in showing it to us. He actually opened that way by his own actions on the cross. Speaking of looking forward to eternity, the author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame because of the joy that was set before him. The way to the joyful future was the way of the cross. And so Jesus, after praying, Father, I want those you have given to me to be with me, immediately goes and provides the way that we can be with him. He goes to the cross where the sin that separates us from the Father was placed on Jesus, where he endured the shame of the cross, where he endured in himself the punishment that we deserve for our sin, where he endured rejection, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, so that we could be accepted as we place our faith in him. In fact, one commentator, it was so beautiful, one commentator pointed out, Jesus was able to pray here that he desires or that he wills that we be with him only because a few minutes later he would pray not as I desire, not as I will, but may your will be done. 
Jesus in the garden used those same words as he contemplated the horror of the cross and every part of his being dreaded it, as he prayed so intensely that it was like drops of blood, he said, not my will. Father, your will be done. And so he went to the cross and he made certain the prayer that he prayed here, that the way would be open for everyone who places their faith in Jesus Christ to be with him for eternity. So this is the blessed hope of the believer. Not a wishy-washy kind of maybe it'll happen, but a confident expectation that our great future is made certain in the cross of Jesus Christ. And so when he prays, Father, I want them to be with me, he is certain that that prayer will be fulfilled. And then we also see in this prayer that that future that we have in Christ is glorious. Jesus says, Father, I want those you have given to me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The glory you've given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. When we see Jesus, we will behold him in all of his glory. It's interesting that at the beginning of the Gospel of John, John said, we have seen his glory. But I don't know if you remember, as we talked about that glory a number of weeks ago, we described how it was veiled in the flesh and glimpses of the glory broke through at various times as Jesus performed his miracles and as he revealed himself to his disciples. And so John's able to say, we, we saw, we saw a little bit of his glory. We've seen his glory. But John knows that the day is coming when we will see him in all of his glory. Nothing hidden. Nothing left unrevealed. What John actually says, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And that moment of seeing Christ in all of his glory is a transformative moment for ourselves. That is the moment of our glorification. We often talked about the doctrine of justification, how we are made right with God by placing our faith with Him. We talk about sanctification, the work of the Holy Spirit in our daily lives to make us more and more like Jesus. There's also the doctrine of glorification. That's a future moment, the moment that we see Jesus and we are completely transformed to be like Him to share in his glory, to share in his holiness, the beauty and the character of Christ reflected in who we are because we see him in his glory. That's what Jesus prays about. 
And just like the fact that we are going to be with him is made certain by his work, the fact that we are going to be like him is made certain by his work. He has already purchased that glory for us. And so as sure and certain, a great and beautiful and glorious future await us in Jesus Christ. That's something that we should look forward to. I think I've told this story before, but I want to tell it again. It was pre-COVID. I was in a lot better shape than I am in now, and I was on my bike all the way out near Jordan Lake and was praying for a member of our church who was sick and nearing death. And honestly, in my prayer, I was trying to convince God of how glorious it would be for him if he would heal this person. And what the Lord brought to my mind was a hymn that we sing. Oh, that will be glory for me. When by his grace, I look on his face, that will be glory, will be glory for me. And things fell into perspective. Yes, we pray for healing. Yes, we pray for health. We pray for all kinds of blessing in this world but it all pales in comparison of what's waiting for us. And we recognize when we pray for those things, we are praying for a lesser glory as we look forward to the greater glory of going into the presence of Jesus Christ and being with him forever. That then provides motivation for us. John, in 1 John chapter 3, the very next verse goes on to say, everybody who has that hope in him purifies himself because Jesus is pure. That future glory provides motivation for our sanctification in this moment. That future glory also provides motivation for living a life that is faithful in service. Remember how the Apostle Paul talked about life like a race and Christian ministry, like, like running for a prize? And he says, I beat my body and I make it my slave so that I can somehow attain that prize. Now, we are all absolutely right when we say that um, gaining eternal life is something that comes to us by grace through faith and is unrelated to our work. We all get into heaven on the same basis and that is only what Jesus Christ has done in our behalf. But we sometimes forget about the fact that Jesus, Paul, the scriptures tell us that there are rewards in heaven for faithful service. And looking forward to greater rewards for Jesus' glory and looking forward to greater responsibility in the kingdom of heaven motivates us now to serve faithfully, to serve with all of the energy of Christ at work in us. This sure and confident expectation also, of course, provides comfort. Comfort each other with these words, with the knowledge that those who have gone before us 
are already in the presence of Jesus and with the knowledge that we will someday be with them in glory. So Jesus in praying reveals to us a beautiful and eternal hope. But then he also reveals to us the need of the world and the fact that he is the provision for a world that is desperately lost. Let's look at verses 25 and 26. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. As we contemplate eternity, these verses lay out very clearly for us the need of those who do not yet know Jesus Christ. All throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus has pointed out to people that they do not know the Father. The crowds claim to know the Father. He said, no, you don't. The Pharisees claim to know the Father. He said, no, you don't. Different groups of people that he talked with claim to know the Father. And he said, no, you don't know the Father because you don't know me and you do not accept me. And if you do not accept me, then you do not know the Father. And then in verse 17, I mean, in verse 3 of chapter 17, he real, reveals the tragedy of what it means not to know the Father. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That beautiful, glorious, certain future that we have with Jesus is not something that can be known, that is the future experience, that is the great hope and the great joy of anybody who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ and does not know the Father through Him. Now it's interesting, if you look at those various groups of people that Jesus talked to, they all thought that they knew the way. Jesus talked to some who claimed that they knew the laws. You diligently study the Scriptures because you think that by them you will receive eternal life. Those are the Scriptures that testify about me, Jesus says, and yet you don't know me. You have not turned to me. Knowing a lot about God, knowing a lot of theology, knowing a lot about the Scriptures, does nothing to bring us eternal life. It is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It is knowing the Father in the sense of experiencing Him, not simply knowing facts. There were others who thought that heritage were children of Abraham. Jesus says, God can raise up children of Abraham out of these stones. That heritage doesn't mean anything. Belonging to Carrie Lyons Church doesn't mean anything. Belonging to a Christian family doesn't mean anything 
in the matter of eternal life, having a personal relationship with the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ is the only way to have that blessed hope. There were others who thought that they were good enough. Look at all of the laws that I have obeyed. And Jesus says, God is the only one who is good. Here he prays to the righteous Father. Earlier he had prayed, Holy Father, pointing out how very far short we fall of God's perfection. There is no way that we can ever be good enough to reach the Father. It is only by knowing Him through Jesus Christ. At this point, I think it's important to mention there's no such thing as justification by death. That seems to be the common doctrine that we have in the United States. So-and-so died, and now they're in a better place. Without regard to the Scriptures, without regard to faith, without regard to knowing and loving the Lord Jesus Christ, we need to repudiate that thinking. We need to stop talking like that. We cannot perpetuate a lie that inoculates people to sin and judgment to come. We are only justified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We only have eternal life because of a relationship with the Father that comes through Jesus. But Jesus is the supply of that need. If our world suffers from a lack of knowledge of God, Jesus Christ reveals who the Father is. He says here in these verses that he himself knows the Father, and of course his knowledge of the Father is perfect. Pastor Cameron has done such a good job of pointing out the importance of the prologue of John for the rest of the gospel. And in the prologue, the very first verse, John speaks of Jesus as the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God in perfect fellowship with the Father. And the Word was God, sharing in the very essence of God. And so being in perfect fellowship with the Father from eternity past and sharing in the very essence of the Father, Jesus knows the Father perfectly. And then Jesus tells us over and over and over again in the Gospel of John that he has made the Father known. John says, no one has ever seen God, but God the only Son has made him known. Jesus says to the disciples, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. He is the revelation of everything that we need to know about God, and he is the only revelation of what we need to know about God. Because Jesus also says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. So Jesus knows the Father. Jesus has made the Father known in his word. And Jesus continues to make the Father known. He says it right here in this prayer. Through us. 
through the disciples and through those who would come to faith through the ministry of the disciples. That's his plan. That's why he left the disciples in the world. Remember, Jesus wants us to be with him in eternity, and yet we're not there, we're here. And when Jesus prayed for the disciples in John 17, he says, I'm praying not that you would remove them from the world, but I'm praying for them while they are still in the world. Jesus told the disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you to go and bear fruit. Jesus told the disciples, you must testify about me. The very reason that he gives the Holy Spirit as his abiding and continuing presence with the disciples is so that they can take his witness out into the world so that the continuing revelation of who Jesus Christ is will be accomplished through us. Ponder that strategy. Jesus left a ragtag group of men and women who were not powerful in this world and said, go and take it to the ends of the world. And he's doing that to this day. So seeing how Jesus has revealed the Father, then we can see the twofold nature of our witness. The first is proclamation. Our testimony about the Father must be word-based. Jesus is the only way to the Father. He has revealed himself to us in the scriptures. We must proclaim the word shamelessly and faithfully. And then we must demonstrate the truth of our testimony. Jesus talked about it with the disciples over and over again. It's by your unity and by your love that the world will know that you are my disciples. Our relationship with each other is supposed to stand out to such an extent that it's actually a testimony to the world. And probably the greatest barrier to effective evangelism is infighting, backbiting, gossip, divisions and rivalries, whether they be of a spiritual or political or social nature within the church. They're no different than we are. But Jesus said, oh, you're different because the love of Christ is at work among you. May it be a testimony to the world. And we also demonstrate our witness by carrying out the Father's work. Remember, Jesus said, I'm sending you to do the very work that I have been doing. Everything that Jesus did out in the world, his demonstrations of compassion, of love, of forgiveness, and of power pointed people to the knowledge of the Father. How good to have such a glorious future. And what a heavy burden to make that future known to the world around us. Let's pray, but let's also prepare ourselves. 
We're about to finish up our series on hard questions in the uh, Sunday school class in room 115. Next week we have hymns and homily, and then the week after that we are going to start a study of this book called Before You Share Your Faith, Five Ways to Be Evangelism Ready. Let me encourage you to attend that class. I bought 40 of these. I hope that's too few and that some of you have to buy your own. And let's pray together that God would use this study among us and through our small groups and in our various interactions so that we can truly reflect the great hope that we have in our relationships with the world around us. Let's pray. Father, we again thank you for that day that somebody cared enough to tell us about Jesus. For most of us, it was a Sunday school teacher or our parents or some other leader in the church who took the time, who loved us so much and whose love was obvious and then whose words reflected the good news of Jesus. For others of us, it was unexpected. Someone you brought our way in a moment of need and who was bold enough to share their faith. However it happened, we know it is by your grace. And we are so grateful for that moment. And Lord, we long to be used in that way. We long to be a messenger of your good news and a demonstrator of your love. And so we invite you to do whatever is necessary in our hearts and in our lives to make us more like Jesus in this regard. In whose name we pray, amen.